0: Following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at 1015 or check us out at DeeringChristian.org. Any good story, and so many good stories have been turned into good movies. Now that's not always the case. But but when it comes to a really good story, whether whether it's an action movie, action stories, sci-fi, or even just a good drama. Um in my personal opinion, the best of stories have a hero. That hero can look a lot of different ways, right? But if you have a hero in a story, and the story is really going to have its impact on you reading that story or watching that story unfold at the movies, what has to be in the story as well as a hero? A villain an enemy. Absolutely. And if it's a really good story, it needs to be a really worthy enemy. A good a real good plot has an enemy as a matter of fact who at some level gains the at some point in time gains the upper hand and deals a devastating blow to the hero. All right? The enemy does this. These are really, really good stories. There's a reason. Think about your favorite stories, your favorite movies. All right? And I would encourage you to do more reading than you do watching. But I do understand our culture, too. All right? But think about your favorite stories, your favorite movies. And how many of them does that plot play out? A hero, an enemy, a villain. Okay, And and the villain has the upper hand at some point before the turning point in the movie. There's a reason why this, this story, this plot is so timeless. It's happened over and over and over, not in storytellers, but in history. It really has. Our own Lord and Savior lived this out. And he is the ultimate... Superhero, if you will, okay? Here's a question, though. Something to think about, because it's the truth. Until God chooses to bring everything to an end and push the reset button for his people. You understand what I'm saying here? Jesus comes back. Okay, and, and makes all things new. But before you make all things new, you have to get rid of everything. So, so redoes everything. But until that time comes, we in this world will continue to deal with enemies. And I'm talking about enemies of the spiritual nature. Now here's, here's the question. What, what kind of enemies are there to the kingdom of God? I mean, probably where our mind might go first right off is, is this. Um, maybe perhaps it's, it's opposition to God's kingdom. Those who persecute the church. And, and we see that on some level in our country, but you get outside the borders of this country and you see it in a very strong way. Okay, is that, is that the enemy? Is that the main enemy? Is that the enemy we're even going to talk about today? What about this? The enemy Satan. Satan, the devil... He what? He roars, he prowls, he roars like a lion seeking someone to devour. So are are those the enemies that, that, that we need to be aware of? The opposition to God's kingdom and the powers of darkness. The book of Romans was written by the apostle Paul. Okay, His name was Saul. Once upon a time, he was a persecutor of the church, speaking of opposition. Jesus turned his life upside down and around and everything else, okay? And he not only becomes no longer in opposition to church, but one of its biggest promoters, all right? Um, He wrote a large part of our New Testament, and he wrote the gospel, or not the gospel, he wrote the book of Romans. Now, within that, he, the first half of that book, and those of you who've been to Romans class, I'm sorry, it's a little bit of review, The first half of the book of Romans is the gospel according to Paul, kind of put into his words. Actually, when summer draws to a close and we jump into the full-on Wednesday night program again, next September we'll be jumping back into Romans, the very end of chapter 8, moving through the rest of the book of Romans, I'm hoping next year. The end of chapter 7, though, of the book of Romans, what we're going to look at today has been a source of debate for centuries. And the reason why is people cannot seem to completely agree on who Paul is talking about in Romans 7, 14 through 25. We're going to look at that as a whole chunk together, all right? This is what it says. Paul speaking, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for the willing is present in me but the doing of good is not for the good that I want I do not do but I practice the very evil the very evil that I do not want but if I am the But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members." Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. First of all, look at the pronouns of this passage. Okay? We see I. I. And we see not only is Paul talking about himself, apparently, he's also talking about himself in the present tense, meaning he's not talking about the past. He was talking about right then, what he was living right now. Now, here are some of the questions that are brought about by biblical scholars who know a lot more about this thing than I do, okay? Because they're all over the map when it comes to this passage of Scripture. It's confusing, For one thing, it's not just confusing because it's a tongue twister. It's confusing because how can Paul be using language like this? All right, so so let's look at this. Is Paul talking about his old life? In this passage, you say, I'm a slave to sin. I'm struggling. I'm I'm doing all of these things. What I want to do, I can't do. And what I don't want to do, I do. Is he talking about his old life before Christ came on? If you look at Paul's old life from what we have in the book of Acts... Who's ever writing this loathes his actions. It's like, I want to do what's right so bad, but I can't do it. And I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. I'm an idiot. I can't get a hold Paul's old life, there was no self-loathing. There was only a very confident man who was confidently persecuting the church of God. So I don't think this is his old life. Okay, maybe it's, maybe it's that short period of time just before Paul turned his life over to Jesus. In, in fancy religious language, this, this is, this is what it is. He's convicted of the sin in his life, and he knows something needs to change, but he's not yet regenerated and made new by the blood of Jesus Christ. Is that what's going on here? I just don't think that's too probable, because that is such a short, infinite period of time. Okay, is Paul using I, the pronoun I, personal pronoun, first person. How do you like that, Bill? That's good, all right. All right, don't ask me anything else about English grammar, okay. I studied this a lot this week. Okay, is he using this I in a hypothetical way? Because Paul had been known to use hypothetical characters and in himself into the argument. He had done this before. He even does it in the book of Romans. But the context looks nothing like this when Paul's using this writing tactic. He's not just asking rhetorical questions. That's what he does when he uses this fictitional I. So here's the question. Is Paul simply talking about himself at the time? And the reason so many people have a problem with that is because of the language in verse 14 and again in verse 20 when it says, sold into bondage to sin. They get hung up on that. Well, let's dig into it a little bit deeper. Maybe by the time we're through here, we can answer the question of why Paul would use language like this. You know what? I think there are very few people, don't get me wrong, there are some, but I think there are very few people who enjoy conflict. There's some that do like conflict. They 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 just they just like it. I mean that it's like their element. It's their thing, and they're good at it. Okay, um, but I believe most people will avoid conflict if it is at all possible. There's one place though that conflict can never be avoided, and I'm not talking about a Chiefs Broncos playoff game. <laughs> The conflict that takes place in here for the believing person, man, woman, child. The raging war that goes on inside the mind. And Paul defined that conflict in two ways. I'm going to paraphrase it. We've already looked at Is it. this. I know what I need to do, and I can't do it. Okay? I know what I shouldn't do, and I do it anyway. Anybody ever been there? The war on the inside. There is one thing that we need to be very, very clear about. Actually, a couple things, but this one's so highly important. And we're going to go through those and then get very, very practical today. I hope you like practic, practicality. There we go. I think that's the word, I believe. Okay, yeah. I hope you like that because we're going to get very, very practical today. But before we do that, listen closely. There's one thing we need to be very clear about in this passage of Scripture, verse 17 and verse 20. We've already touched on it. And if we're not careful, we can come away from this passage with a complete misunderstanding of what Paul is saying. And it's this. Hey, when I mess up, it's not me doing it. It's the sin living in me. Turn to James, chapter 1, beginning with verse 13. You'll find it in the very, very near end of, of, of your Bible. It's in the last six or seven books of the Bible. As you can see, it's right there pretty close to the end. I always liked the book of James. It was named well. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. James, chapter 1. Verses 13 through 15. I love the book of James, not because it was named well, but because when it comes to, to being practical, there is nothing. I mean, the Bible's practical, but man, James just lays it out there. And the problem with James sometimes, us reading it, it's not that we don't understand it. We just we just understand a little too well sometimes because he says some pretty tough things. And this is what he has to say. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Speaking in what well, the question we asked... It's not me doing it. It's just that sin living in me. It's not me. Verse 13 says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. So he's making it very clear. God doesn't tempt. But he broadens the argument to say exactly who's the culprit when we not only are tempted, but when we mess up. Verse 14. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. I'll tell you what, in Romans chapter 8, Paul is not, and I repeat, he is not, absolutely not, Removing personal responsibility from us in this passage when we mess up. Our will leads us to a path of messing up. We are at fault. Another thing to be clear about this passage, and it is the central theme of the book of Romans. Look to verse 14. Back to Romans Romans 7, okay? For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am sold to flesh, sold into bondage, uh, sold sold into bondage to sin. We know that the law is spiritual, and in this passage, he goes on to say something others that the law is good. All of chapter seven is about that. Part of chapter six is about that. The law is not bad. All right, it is a good, good thing. Read just a little bit earlier in this chapter. Romans 7, 7. This is what Paul says about the law. When he says law, understand specifically he's talking about God's law. Okay? He says this, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would have not come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. You know what the law does? The purpose of the law in this world is to show us our greatest need. And our greatest need is we need a savior. Because the law was never intended to be the savior. In other words, we cannot please God enough to him allow us into heaven by obeying the law. Because we all mess The law is not bad. The law is good. The law just isn't powerful enough to save. That was never its purpose. The last thing we need to make clear in this passage is this. The subject of this dialogue, this, this, I want to do what one knows right. I can't do it. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it Anyway. The subject of this dialogue finds himself on his knees, wholly defeated and helpless. Could this really be the Apostle Paul? Back to our question. Paul was not perfect. There is one character out of the Bible that lived in this world in perfection. And his name wasn't Paul. Or Saul. His name was Jesus. Jesus. Paul was not perfect. What do you think Paul battled personally? I mean, we're told that he's made, he's got some battles. So he lays it right out there, guys. I can tell you what Paul was. And you can, you can find this out by yourself reading his writing. Paul was this. He was a prototypical type A personality. And that's not a sin, all right? But it is what he is. And sometimes a type A personality, some of you know firsthand, can get you into a little trouble, all right? As a matter of fact, Paul was not brand new to this following Jesus thing. He'd been at it for a little while. And he'd been doing some amazing things by the power of the Spirit for the work of God's kingdom. But you know what? There's a period of time when he he didn't get things his way. And he threw a temper tantrum. And he split off from his friend and greatest source, human source of encouragement... His buddy, Barnabas. Matter of fact, Saul was the greatest persecutor of the church. He turned his life around, became a follower of Jesus Christ. And it was Barnabas who stood by, because nobody wanted to listen to this guy. He was scared to death of this guy. He was taking people to prison. He was watching people get stoned to death, all right? And now he's on our side? What are you saying? And it was Barnabas who stood by his side and said, this guy's for real. Listen to him." And he and Barnabas had a disagreement. And the end result was they parted ways. Paul was wrong. Barnabas was right. Read the writings of Paul closely. You read them. You read his letters in 1 and 2 Corinthians. You read his letter to the Galatian church. And I can tell you one thing. Paul worked hard to do battle And he also worked hard when it was time and it was necessary to lay down the battle axe when it came to those who were opposing him and those baby Christians that he got so frustrated with all the time. Matter of fact, why don't you turn over just for an example of this, 1 Corinthians. It'll just be a few pages over for you, okay, from your passage in Romans. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If there was any group that tested Paul's patience, it was the church in the city of Corinth. Oh, my goodness. All right? and paul wrote actually three letters to them we have two of them there might even be more than that and this is what this is what paul had to said 1 corinthians chapter 4 verse 21 and this is the question he asked the church as he's writing them a letter he says hey i'm not just writing a letter i'm going to be coming to see you too all right and this is what he says what do you desire church shall i come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness, you know what's more natural to Paul's personality? I'll give you a hint. It's not the last two things. <laughs> it's going to hurt you more than it hurts me. You ever heard that before? You ever hear that when you're a kiddo? Mom, Dad say that and lied to you. Uh huh. Yes, Paul struggled, and there was a battle inside even after Jesus found him and changed his life. Alexander White, this is what he had to say in speaking of Christians. That's what he said. Now, Alexander White was a century before last, so the language is going to sound a little different. Bear with me, all right, because I wanted to quote this. Speaking of Christians, he says, when Christ made himself known to them as their Savior and the beloved of their souls, the carnal mind seemed to be dead. You you remember that? I mean, you come up out of that baptistry, you're dripping from the water still, and man, life looks so good. It's like, man, Jesus saved me. He's my Lord. Now, this is it's going to be easy street from here on out, right? I mean, no more battles. I'm leaving the darkness behind. But these people, they found out afterwards that their carnal mind, which is their selfish desires, they weren't dead. So some have experienced more soul trials after their conversion. Then, before they were awakened to the sense of their lost condition. In other words, we still have a battle going on inside. Even when Jesus has washed us clean. Paul's picture of this internal argument we see in Romans chapter 7. It's not completely original to Paul. Maybe you'll recognize a few of these names. Philo. Cicero. Plato. How about this one? Marcus Aurelius. Okay? They all said similar things to these. That there's this battle going on inside. But... Paul's argument was different because those guys had no verse 25 in their argument. And their argument was really dismal, right? It's like this battle rages and we, we can't overcome it. But fortunately, Paul follows his, O oh, wretched man that I am, with this. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And, and and what's it say there? And they, they they shouldn't have put the break right here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Verse one of chapter eight goes much better with the end of chapter seven when it says this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, I was reading um, I was reading a work of of Larry Osborne a while back, and and he had. He he had a a section that he was was speaking about this passage of Scripture, and he entitled the section of his writing in this way. And it was this, the traitor within. That's what he said this is. And it's not talking about the traitor within the church. It's talking about the traitor within us. Okay? And he said, there's something we have to understand. if we don't recognize that there's a traitor that lives within us, if we do not take that traitor seriously, there will be ramifications. I'm going to give you four of them, all right? Number one, if we don't take the traitor seriously, we will be blindsided by sin. You ever had a bad day? And I'm talking about the bad day when, when, um, not just somebody cuts you off on the way to work. No, 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 I'm talking about, or, or, or even something infinitely worse than that. Uh, no, I'm talking about the bad day when it comes to this battle that's going on within. A day where you can't seem to do anything right. And you do everything wrong. And because of that day, you just, it's just, it's just a rotten day. And, and you know what we will, what, what some will be tempted to do, they'll just brush those days off. And say, ah, that's not really me. I'm just pooped. I'm tired, happens, you know. (laughs) I love this. You know what Larry Osborne said about that mentality? He said, if that's your mentality on your worst day, you say, that's not really me. I'm just, I was tired that day. He says, those are the days that you really are yourself because you don't have the energy to fake it. Even more dangerous than that is this. If we don't recognize the traitor within, we will say, I got this. I can handle this. I don't need any help. This is a little too embarrassing to share. I can handle this on my own. Because we're not recognizing there is a traitor in here that needs to be dealt with. Number two, if we don't recognize, a traitor within will focus on the wrong enemy. Remember what was said in James chapter 1. When we are tempted, when we sin, we're the ones at fault. And if we begin focusing on the other enemies, we will forget. Now, there's nothing wrong with focusing on the opposition of God. Because we're trying to convert them like somebody... You know, Jesus was a big part in this, all right? Changing the life of Saul so that he became Paul. So there's something to be said for recognize the enemies of God, but do not forget the number one enemy that all of us battle resides right here. Within. Our selfish desire. The desire to put myself on the throne today instead of Christ Jesus. Number three, if we don't recognize that there is a traitor within, we will become disillusioned and cynical. You know why? Because it's not just us not recognizing the traitor within us. I don't recognize the traitor within you. And I take you and I put you on a pedestal. And then you screw up, fall on your face, and I'm lost because I put the wrong person on the pedestal. Jesus was the only one who, on his own, overcame the traitor within and lived the perfect life so he could be the perfect sacrifice for us. And if I look at you like my hero, you're going to let me down. If you look at me like your hero, I'm going to let you down. You might even be tempted to say, I'm done with it. I'm just sick of it. Done. But we have to recognize the traitor within. So we do not become disillusioned and cynical. And when our hero messes up, we rally to lift him or her back up again instead of turning our back on them. Oh my goodness, that one's important, folks. Number four. If we do not recognize the traitor within, we will create a climate of hypocrisy and harshness. You know why? Because they've seen us rip someone to shreds for messing up. So I'm not going to let you know my mess ups. (laughs) I'll put my face on, I'll come to church, I'll do the thing. When I leave church, I'll take it right back off again. And guess what? I'm not going to be real. Not going to be real. Because I've seen what they do to real people at that church. If we do not recognize the traitor within, we'll create a climate of hypocrisy and harshness and fakeness. I know that's a word, Bill. We'll run with it. Guys, we've got to tame this traitor within us. Why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians? It's just the next book over. I told you it would be there in a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Those who think Paul wasn't talking about himself in Romans chapter 7, I wonder if they've ever read 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Because Paul is absolutely talking about himself here. 1 Corinthians 9 beginning with verse 24. Do you not know that all those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. When they do it, they receive a perishable wreath. That's their reward. But we receive something imperishable, eternal. Therefore, I run. Paul talking, he's using first person here. I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. That's a sermon right there. We don't shadow box, all right? Verse 27. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Do you know those the words of a person right there? That's the words of a person who understands that there's a traitor within. And he understands that it takes work to tame that traitor. It's the same guy who said... I crucify myself daily, all right? You understand? Daily. I've got to kill my desires and put the desires of my savior above mine. You know what's missing in chapter 7 of Romans, those in Romans class? You already know. You better know. You know what's missing? Chapter 7 mentioned time just kind of in passing. And then the whole end of it, you don't see anything about it at all. And then you get to Romans chapter 8, and it's chock full of it. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Folks, I don't know about you. But when I find myself in a bad place, dealing with the results of a bad decision, come to the fact that I didn't listen to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is within. And you know what Romans, the end of Romans chapter 7 is all about? It's about even Paul at times ignoring the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Jesus left this world. Before he left, he told his disciples it would be better for him to leave so that the helper could come. And the helper is the Holy Spirit. Jesus told those who had been with him for three years, ate, drank, walked many roads with him, slept on the same ground as him, followed his example, saw the miracles, And he told them without laughing. He was serious and he said, it's better for you if I go and leave you here alone. But he didn't say alone. It's better if I go and leave you so that the helper can come. I asked the class on Wednesday night this question. How many of us think it would be easier to live for for Jesus if he was walking beside us every step of the way physically? If you say yes to that question, then you're contradicting what Jesus himself said. when He said it's better that you have the Spirit within. Because there's a battle that rages inside. And one of the roles of that Holy Spirit is to give us the desire and the strength to overcome ourselves. On our best and our worst days. No more wars in heaven. I'm sure that that, 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 I, we know that's the truth. There will be no wars in heaven. And if I make that statement in different parts of this world, I'm sure that people's minds are going to go to different places. Yes, there are war-torn countries in our world right now, and you come to them and say, no more wars in heaven, and their mind's probably going to go to a place of what they've seen and the destruction and the trauma that they have experienced because of physical warfare in this world. And there'll be none of that in heaven. But the other war that will not reside in heaven It's the war that rages inside. Does that excite anybody? No more enemies. No more traitor on the inside. Can you imagine living in a way that your your desires, your selfishness, your body doesn't argue with you anymore? It's not so stinking hard to do what you're supposed to do and to not do what you're not supposed to do. It's over because the enemy's gone. Defeated once for all. That's heaven, people. But until that time comes, we have to keep battling and recognize there's something within that wants desperately to get between us and God. Us and our Savior. And that's something within. It's our own selfishness. And we can't let it happen. Amen. Would you stand with me please. Folks I hope. That when we're here together, or perhaps you are with a different part of this bigger body, this bigger family here. I mean, there's Bible studies that go on. There's life groups that go on. There's Sunday school classes that go on. And in those places, I hope you realize, and if you don't, talk to one of the elders or talk to me or JB. If it's not a place where you feel like you can be real And if you're struggling with something, really let it be known and expect nothing in return but encouragement. Let us know, because if that's not this place, then we need to change this place. And if today you are battling something that has been made clear to you by this passage of Scripture, do not leave here without doing something about it. You're not in this battle alone. Every one of us has got that enemy inside. Trying to get in our way. Right? So the Lord's speaking to you today. Don't leave without seeing what he's saying. And I respectfully ask that those who are in this room would leave at least the front third of this room Empty as we close the service. If you want to talk some that's fine. Talk back a little further or out in the foyer. Those talks are important. Don't stop them. Just give a little privacy for those who might want to come down here. Because the Lord's moved them in some way. The Lord's working on your heart. Do something about it today. I'll be here, J.B., Melvin, and one of our elders will be here if need be. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you today. We thank you, Lord, for... uh, for the encouragement we receive from your word, we thank you, Father, that that even a uh, such a powerful servant of yours like the apostle Paul, or can honestly say that there are days that struggled, and, and, and Father, I pray that we had learned from that, and if if need so, that we be encouraged from it, Lord, knowing that uh, we're not called to be perfect. called to be growing people. Lord, if there's one here who's working through something today that, that they need help with, I pray that he or she wouldn't leave this place without doing something about it. We thank you, Lord, that the day is coming in heaven when this war will end finally. And we will serve you, Lord, and work in a brand new world in perfection, made new by Jesus Christ forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.